Thank you all for coming out this afternoon for what I'm sure is going to be a wonderful conversation with Eric. Um, I want to add one more thing as well. Yesterday afternoon, we brought together eight people to do a group sand tray. Commonweal has a sand tray room back in the far corner um, that we use. It's an expressive art that is used therapeutically. It's used for self-investigation. And Marion Weber, who is a longtime friend of Commonweal's and ha is the creator of Group Santre facilitated the group with me. So feel free to go back. We'll be taking it down um, later this afternoon, but feel free to go back and take a look at both the room and the tray that we created. It's a part of this series and the theme that we took to um, this, this adventure together in the Santre was what there is left in our life that's asking to be done. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Eric Karpolis to you. Eric is a relatively new member of the Bolinas community. He and his partner, Mike, who's right here somewhere, um, have been, there he is, have been in the community here for three years. Um, and he has joined the Commonweal Board of Directors a year ago. And we are very fortunate and delighted about that. I've been personally so it, uh, really loved getting to know both Eric and Mike and um, I, but I want to read you some of the things about my about Eric because I don't want to forget any of them because they're impressive. Um, Eric's a painter, writer, and translator. I think many of you are familiar with his book, Paintings in Proust, and he's done a talk here before for the New School about that book and about Proust, and I know there's a Proust reading group in town. Um, the book has gotten acclaim everywhere. It's been translated into several languages. It's been cited as uh, a book of the year by the New York Times, the Times of London, the Wall Street Journal. It was the recipient of a special citation, um, Northern California Book Award. His newest book is the translation of Proust's Overcoat, a, a smaller book, lovely. And um, I hope you all have an opportunity to read and look at both of those. Um, Eric is also the painter of the Rockefeller Chapel, which is a permanent installation uh, within a spiritual center for multi-faith worship in New York City, and also the Sanctuary, which is um, a monumental painted room dedicated to the contemplation of loss and mortality, and it has traveled around the United States, and um, also beautiful works to, to be seen. In November, Eric uh, was in my most recent hometown of, of or my most recent home state in Dallas, in Texas, um, to deliver the biennial Eamon Carter Lecture on the Arts at the Harry Ransom Center. And he also recently interviewed um, lyricist and songwriter Stephen Sondheim as a part of in the, um, at the Jewish Community Center here in San Francisco. And he will also be the person who will interview W.S. Um, uh, Merwin when he is here in February. And it was through Eric's friendship with William that we've been able to have this wonderful event come to us. So I introduce to you Eric to talk to us about The Last Threshold and Artists and Mortality. To you. Hello. <laughs> um, thank you all for coming. Um, I wanted to, uh, to begin by explaining a little of the context, if some of you aren't familiar, uh, about 
I'd say about nine months ago, there was a, 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 an interest in creating this group of people to discuss uh, the end of life, possibly Commonweal creating a program uh, around this as well. So the Planning Commission got together, and I found, uh, I was very interested in this myself, and what I have found is that in all of these discussions, that I am the one person who represents essentially the non um, the non-disease oriented or the non-illness oriented person in the group. Um, so that I'm, I'm fortunate to be in, in good health and kind of what might be called the prime of my life. But I still think the issue of, of the end of life is something that's very valuable for all of us to, to think about and discuss. So my contribution to this discussion, to these conversations has been uh, to think about how uh, people of all ages can actually address this issue, how it can be more easily uh, broached, the idea of each of us taking on the concept of our own mortality. I've always been uh, uh, fascinated by the idea of, of death and how people face death. I don't know why. <laughs> I might be a little bit strange that way. But uh, I, I feel that there's room for much more discussion. And my way of presenting in this group, in this context, is to talk about people who have actually facilitated my understanding of, of the uh, inevitability of, of mortality. And I've turned to the artists, the great artists, who somehow managed to grapple with these issues and somehow make a contribution, make sense of what their experiences are. So, um, I am not, uh, I'm not a professional in the sense that uh, Rachel Remen or Michael or Susan and Mike Witte, uh, but this is a, a, a layman's stab at dealing with these issues. Um, how do we begin to comprehend what is not comprehensible? the end of life, none of us can really understand that. It's not an idea that one can understand. This is also something. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Um, from the time of the ancients, there was this concept of... Uh, can we bring the lights down? Thank you. <laughs> In the ancient world, there was a belief that there was somewhere on the surface of the earth that connected life above and the underworld, where people went when they died. This is a very palpable place, tangible in the ideas of the ancients. Represented perhaps most by, on, uh, on the right up there, is Virgil, the poet of the Aeneid, who spends uh, a lot of book six of the Aeneid talking about his experience visiting the underworld. And with him in this picture is uh, Dante, who uh, 1,300 years later also wrote about his experiences visiting the underworld. But the difference is that Dante understood that there was not a physical place, and he used the sense of hell and purgatory and heaven metaphorically. So the answer to the question is how we can better understand uh, the incomprehensible is that we understand it through our use of metaphor, 
from uh, the Greek, meta meaning beyond and pharon being to carry. So the idea of moving beyond, carrying beyond. Now, we use this uh, metaphoric language to help us create pictures and feelings and ideas. Um, through metaphor, things that we can't name in our interior lives somehow uh, find a way of moving towards, towards naming. Through metaphor, things that can't be named in our interior lives are given names. Poetry and music strive to name the unnameable and to communicate the unknowable. Metaphoric language leads us into the sublime, another word that has uh, interesting etymology, uh, actually passing under or through a lintel. So it represents a threshold so that we move from one world into another, one space into another. Now, interestingly, in English, the English language, sublime originally was used as a chemical term for uh, chemicals as they pass from a, a gaseous state to a solid state without any intermediary state. Is, it, that's called to sublimate a chemical. And it became, in, uh, in our understanding of it, we've reverted back to the Roman, the original rhetorical Roman idea of um, something that sparks, so that literature, a poem, sparks, it sends across a threshold, a spark from the artist to the, the reader, from the poet to the, the person who's reading the poem. That is the notion of, of sublimation, of, to, of the sublime. Wallace Stevens' beautiful quote, death is the mother of beauty in his poem, Sunday Morning, this really uh, encapsulates in a, single, in a single phrase so much of what our own vulnerability, our own susceptibility to, to mortality. And it is, um, I think, the way in which we all understand this, for instance, in watching a sunset as the end of the day comes, this is kind of the dying of the light uh, when we see dead leaves flickering by us on the street, there's something about death that renders us more sensitive, that makes us more open to it. And, and it's the poets and it's the uh, painters and the musicians, the composers, who have, who have made the most of this idea. W.H. Auden also, to contextualize this idea of art and, and what it can do, says that uh, art is not magic, a means by which artists communicate or arouse feelings in others, but a mirror in which they may become conscious of what their own feelings really are. The proper effect, in fact, is disenchanting. He wrote this in relation to uh, his study on, uh, Shakespeare, of Shakespeare's Tempest about the, the character of Prospero, the, mu the magician. And he said that this is the great art is not about uh, obfuscation. Great art really is about paring back to the essentials. So I've chosen in this discussion to talk about three artists who represent three different uh, media. Uh, Emily Dickinson was a poet, 
Gustav Mahler, the composer, and Mark Rothko, the painter. Each of these was, in his own way, a supreme artist and, and engaged in a lifelong struggle to comprehend their own mortality, their own relationship to, to life and what happens after life. Emily Dickinson, I could spend the whole talk just talking about all the things I can't talk about because, about her because there's so much to say about her. She is one of the most complex characters, personalities in, in American history. Uh, she's not very well known, but Harold Bloom, the great critic, said about her that uh, she had more cognitive originality than any artist since Dante. There's not a great deal that's known um, about her interior life beyond what we have from her letters and her poems. Um, but she lived a, a fairly reclusive life. She wrote more than 1,700 poems. In one year, she wrote 366 poems, which is more than one poem a day. She never published in her lifetime. She was really not interested in engaging at that level. She did uh, reach out to people who were in the publishing world, to literary. She was looking for, uh, for conversation, for dialogue, more than she was for acclaim. Um, in 1955, almost 70 years after her death, the first complete collected poems of Emily Dickinson appeared. So it has been a long time coming in terms of the 19th century moving into the 20th century and allowing for the uh, difficulty and the differences between cultural norms at the time and understanding of what she was trying to do. Uh, from the time of her death, there was an attempt to mythologize her. Uh, and bit by bit, some of her poems were let out into the world. But generally, they were edited uh, for, um, for content and cleaned up and made more presentable. And it wasn't until 1955 that finally we were at a point where we could accept what the artist actually had to offer us. Um, as an artist, Emily Dickinson gives voice to the combination of the terror and the rapture of life, where mortality places us. Shelley says that what is sublime persuades us to give up easier pleasures for more difficult and painful ones. And this is perfectly embodied in Emily Dickinson. She was very educated. She was educated very well, astonishingly well for a woman of the period. Um, and she studied sciences and history. She spoke and read several languages. Um, she's so smart that sometimes her poems seem impenetrable to us. And it's not always because we feel she's so smart. Sometimes it feels like she's intentionally obfuscating. At the same time, if you work through her poems, and this is through, true of all the artists that I will speak about today, that it is only with time that what they have to say is really revealed. It requires a commitment on the part of the reader or the listener or the viewer to make that deep connection to engage in a dialogue with the work. 
reading Emily Dickinson's poems, one sometimes feel like, it feels like the poet is way up ahead in front of us, waiting, us, waiting for us to catch up to her. She's, the meaning is there, it's just how do we get to it? It's the process of it. Amherst, uh, Dickinson lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, for almost all of her life. This was a, an outpost of uh, America's Puritan past. It was a small town, and as the rest of America began to move to cities and to urbanize, uh, little towns like Amherst and Williamstown in, um, in Massachusetts held on to their, uh, their 18th and early 19th century roots and their ideas about congregationalism, spiritualism. Um, it was a town uh, where dominant themes in everybody's lives were death and immortality. It was something that was always taken up. For women, fear of death from childbirth was enormous and, and well-founded. Uh, there was no medicine to speak of for diseases at that point, and so typhoid, consumption, smallpox, cholera, all of these could run rampant at any moment, and often did. One in four children born survived to the age of 21. So this is a time that's very near our own time, but at the same time, the idea of taking up the idea of one's, the end of one's life as an adult is colored by a lifelong confrontation with, with death and dying. The only remedy to all of this, which Amherst excelled in, was this idea of, of faith and um, that the Bible's promise of resurrection into an afterlife, this was the one thing that was conceived of as, as the ready uh, antidote to all the death around us. All of the educational disciplines that Emily Dickinson engaged in, all of her study, it was very impressive for her to be known chemistry and biology and Latin and Greek, but all of it was presented within this context of religious fervor. This opposition, the hope of a future heaven in relation to the fear of death, manifested itself in every aspect of Emily Dickinson's development. As an example, we use the word goodbye very lively. It was understood in 19th century America that goodbye was a contraction for God be with you. And it was something that you said to somebody in parting to keep God with you, to keep the angel of death away. And it's an awareness of the etymology of these words that Dickinson so cleverly utilizes to her own ends. This is the room in which she lived and spent most of her life in Amherst. She wrote at the desk, and in the bottom of that bureau, the bottom drawer, is where the 1,800 poems that she wrote were found after she died. Bound in small, uh, separate chronological orders that she had uh, arranged them. Emily Dickinson never wavered in her belief in the existence of God, but she was always confounded 
by the nature of this being. In 19th century America, a Christian had to abandon reason and to adopt faith. In the light of morality, sorry, in the light of mortality, man had to turn to the promises of afterlife in the scriptures. But yielding to faith meant sacrificing personal autonomy. And this was something that Emily Dickinson would not do. She, almost against her better judgment, she refused to undergo conversion, which was a popular form of essentially a rite of passage for adults, for men and women when they became a certain age. They would undergo a conversion in which they would pledge themselves to, to Christ. She never did this. She thought that heaven was insufficient as a reward. She did not feel that she wanted to give up her own autonomy. She became, because of this position, increasingly disinclined to be out in society, and, and she withdrew. And over a period of many, many years, she first never went into town, then she never went into the houses nearby, then she stopped leaving the house itself, and eventually she stopped leaving the second floor of the house. Uh, people would come, she would still engage with people, but she would often have conversations with people. You would come into the house to see Emily, and she would stand in her bedroom with the door open at the top of the stairs, and she would converse with you, you at the bottom and she up above. When her father died in 1874, she, stopped, she, she wore only white from that point on. This is also an indication of her uh, unconventionality. Most people in mourning wore black. She felt she wanted to be moving towards the light, and that white was a better color to represent her mourning, her grief. So you have copies of the poem, but I we could Michael, could you turn the, lights, the light up? Thank you. The poets light but lamps, themselves go out. The wicks they stimulate, if vital, light, in here as do the suns. Each age a lens disseminating their circumference. This is one level on which an artist deals with the end, is what will become of my work. Here she says, the poets go out. The lamps, if you think of the lamps actually as her poems. So the poet lights, but lamps themselves go out. In relation to her world, it's God who gives light. She's being slightly blasphemous here by suggesting that, that she, that a poet, that poets can give light. And the poem is kind of a lesson in optics. This is part of her scientific training. She talks about light, wicks, lamps, sun, suns, lenses. Light is seen as revelation in the scriptures, but she's talking about it more on scientific rather than theological terms. But of course there is that overlap. If we think of 
the Wicks, as you and I, as the readers of her poems, readers who are sparked or stimulated in that sublime sense that we talked about before, where the idea goes from the poet to the reader. The wicks, as they stimulate, a vital light. So if, you're, if her poem sparks something in you, if it's a vital light that is created, then they inhere or they cling, as do the suns. Each age a lens disseminating their circumference so that over time, through the ages, the poem can continue to live. There's an interesting confluence of plurals where you might have accepted, expected singulars, nouns, poets, lamps, wicks, sons. All of this is resolved in the final word, which is very resounding in its singularity, circumference. Circumference, again, is... Um, not scientific, more of a mathematical term, but it's used for, for a logical whole. And Dickens, Dickinson aspired to circumference. This was something for her, the idea of grasping and holding a whole that is the resolution of, of the poem. She, circumference places her in a context of poets throughout history poets past and poets to come. And this is a tribute to the connection between the poet and the reader through the lens of, of mortality, of what happens on the other side. This is the manuscript copy of the poem called I Felt a Funeral in My Brain. You can see her hand, beautiful handwriting, almost illegible in some ways. You'll also notice there is an awful lot of marking. There are um, dashes that she uses and commas. She was very, very specific in every use of every punctuation. We really cannot entirely comprehend what the meaning was of all of these. She, she eschewed conventional punctuation. She... Um, created her own syntax. Part of the struggle not to give in to conventional forms that, that a writer of her era would, would give in to, the Bible being the most important uh, inspiration or influence for most writers in terms of form. She wanted to create her own uh, response to it. And as her work was ultimately disseminated over the years, uh, different editors, well-meaning, would correct her punctuation and would change things for what they considered. Me they would drop whole stanzas from the poem. Um, so some of that in, that, in that happening, some of the original manuscript pages are lost. And this is, um, this is not one of them. This we have the original manuscript. I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading, till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service like a drum kept beating, beating till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll, 
as all the heavens were a bell, and being but an ear, and eye and silence, some strange race, wrecked, solitary, here. And then a plank and reason broke, and I dropped down and down, and hit a world at every plunge, and finished knowing then. The final dash at the end allows for the poem to continue to have a life go on that, that a period certainly would not. This, um, this is a poem that's in a form that could be uh, known as a, a, a proleptic poem. Prolepsis is a rhetorical term for something that is anticipated. So she is, as a poet, describing her own death, her own funeral, both from the inside and from the outside. Another example, which is somewhat contemporary of this, is Mark Twain in The Adventure of, Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Tom attends his own funeral. These are um, proleptic literary devices. Um, the, the speaker here is straining after some kind of understanding of, or coherence while she's undergoing uh, almost what appears to be a, a mental breakdown of sorts. Um, from the beginning, the poet prolongs the tension and the dislocation of the experience. She's in her body, she's feeling all these things, but somehow she's dead, she's, she felt a funeral until we come to the end when essentially the plank of reason breaks and we're being asked, what is it that we know and how do we know it? How can we know it? Yes. This, uh, she uses, um, the last two words are get through, which was an alternative to plunge. And isn't it crash? And that's crash. Got through. Those are both possible uses for her of, um, instead of plunge. My question was, I guess of the uppercase, was that the convention of the time or was that? Entirely hers. Entirely hers. Yeah, so wherever there's um, capitalization, uh, that is entirely her choice, uh, and it's not a convention at all. It's, it's her own. So this is um, uh, an image that would, have, or something like it, that would have been known to anybody reading her poems at that point. Uh, the plank of reason, Dickinson chooses as opposed to the plank of faith. I don't know if you can see back here, but it's a man straddling between this world and the afterworld. This being heaven. Maybe if you can turn the light down just for a second, Michael. And on the, the board, on the plank, is written the word faith. This is a reference to uh, seconds, Second Corinthians. Uh, we see not by sight, but by faith. And somebody here is moving from one world into the next. So Dickinson has refused faith, and her plank is the plank of reason. Michael, if you can turn them back up again. Um, 
What happens to us when we die, the poem is addressing. It suggests that confusion is what we are left with. Unbounded and internal loneliness, neither heaven nor hell, what is known, what is unknown. The poem in its meter um, is reminiscent of hymns. Events occur without pause and without insight, without relationship to one another, remorselessly sweeping everything away in its wake. Okay, I wanted to go back to this because I, what I wanted to show was building in the, in the course of the poem is this sense of almost a free fall where she's uh, um, treading and beating, tolling. And if you notice the use of the word and, there are 12 ands in this poem. In a poem that's as concise as this, and many of Emily Dickinson's poems in which there is so much concision, there is often repetition, and it's very significant in its resonance. And this and, 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 you feel kind of, you can visualize somebody falling through space, through, through actually one floor after another, if you think about it that way. And it leads inevitably to the inescapable idea of death. There's a, the inflexibility of the rhythms here and the incessant percussive meter. She makes us feel this pounding madness that, she's, that she herself is feeling. I felt a funeral in my brain. There's a kind of a dislocation. There's a, there's a chaotic aspect with and, 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 and. She repeats this. Also, um, in the first stanza, she uses the word brain. In the second one, it, the, brain rep, in the brain representing the intellect. In the second stanza, you have mind, which uh, um, represents the intellect. I'm sorry, the, the brain is, is the body, is the physical. The mind is, is the intellect. And then um, in the third stanza, you have the soul, which is the spirit. In the fourth, you have being. And being is the one that brings all of these brain, mind, and soul together into one unity. So it builds part by part to the whole of being, and then the being falls through. Let's see if this is going to work. Okay. My life closed twice before its close. It yet remains to see if immortality unveil a third event to me, so huge, so hopeless to conceive as these that twice befell. Parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell. There's a great deal of suffering in this poem. The poet talks about two experiences in her life in which we can never really know what she's particularly talking about. It was the loss of a loved one. It is at the end of, of a relationship or a romance. And that's not really important. What we feel clearly is her pain. If immortality unveil, unveil is another word or another translation of the Greek word apocalypse. 
So certainly Dickinson is playing upon this, apocalypse might be a word that would be too inappropriate in this condition, but she uses if immortality unveil. And what she's afraid of is that it, what it will reveal is that hell is in life with us. She's worried about what will happen when she dies in a third event. Conventional Christianity would re reassure her that whatever loss she endured, that when she dies, she will meet her loved ones again. But she's not convinced of that. There are really three events in this poem. The two she speaks of that happened before the close of her life. The third being her own death. So essentially, the poem has three events, and all of them are death. Dickinson died of uh, Bright's disease, which I believe is a failure of the kidneys, uh, when she was 56. The last letter she wrote was to two of her little cousins, and it just said two words, called back. Move on now to Gustav Mahler, who is uh, one of the greatest conductors of his generation. Most people now know him as a composer, but in his lifetime, he was known almost exclusively as a great conductor. Um, so much to the extent that his life was divided and he never really had enough time to compose, as much time as he would have liked to compose. As a composer, though, he acts as a bridge between late Romanticism and early Modernism. His music gained following long after his death. He died in 1911. It really wasn't until the uh, late 40s and 50s that his music became known across Europe and through the world. And largely that neglect is uh, attributed to anti-Semitism to uh, the, the Germans, to Vienna, who would not play the music of, of Jews who were considered, um, uh, what's the word? Um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Mahler represents the end of a great symphonic tra tradition that began with Haydn and Mozart. Um, he was very aware of being at the end of an era. And his music is suffused with this awareness of that kind of end of life. It was the end of tonality. Because as he wrote furiously whenever he could, he was aware that contemporaries of his, like Schoenberg and uh, Stravinsky, were moving away from tonality. And he felt that he was the repository of that great tradition. His, his theme could be the human spirit's ambiguity. We learn to accept our mortality, and yet we persist in our search for immortality. Mahler was full of contradictions and dualities. He was, on the one hand, a provincial. On the other hand, he was hugely cosmopolitan. He was a conductor. He was a composer. 
he was born Jewish. He converted to Christianity. Um, there are many tensions that fill his, his music. He was one of 14 children, six of whom survived beyond infancy. So again, this contextualizes the idea of the addressing of, of the ends of life, of, of, of our own mortality and the vulnerability of life. He showed his musical gifts very early. He uh, was born in Bohemia. His father was an innkeeper. They often had uh, military bands would come in after their marching and come into the the inn and play, and that was thought to be among the first uh, influence of, on, upon him musically. His first symphony is just full of, of military marches. Um, he graduated from the uh, conservatory and got whatever conducting jobs he could in far-flung posts. His eye was always on the prize of Vienna, but because of his Judaism, he would never have been hired. So because it didn't mean anything to him, he converted to Catholicism and almost immediately retained both the posts of the Vienna Opera and the Vienna Philharmonic. His output as a composer is relatively small, and he only wrote songs and symphonies. No opera, no concerti, no sonatas, no chamber music to speak of. Really, it was just in those two great uh, forms that he uh, he marked with his sensibility. In 1901, he married Alma Schindler, uh, and they had two daughters. This is Friedrich Rückert, who, in the early 19th century, wrote 400 poems about the death of his own two children who died of scarlet fever. They were not meant for publication, but they began to circulate in Vienna. And Mahler was so moved by them that he composed a song cycle called Kinder Toten Lieder, songs on the death of children. Uh, between 1901 and 1904, he worked on these, as well as another series called Five Rukert Lieder, which were five other songs that he put together. And um, we are going to hear now uh, a song from the Rukert Lieder called Ich bin der Welt, his song of withdrawal and resignation, in which the singer moves towards, a uh, uh, towards an acceptance of death. You have the text on that sheet.
I should say that that was Janet Baker singing. In, this is Alma Mahler with their two daughters. In 1907, they went away to the countryside where he took time to compose. They lived in a little cabin. Both of the girls contracted diphtheria. And Maria, the older one, died. Uh, and Mahler said that he would never have written the music if he, it had been his own daughter. Um, this is actually the sheet music for uh, what we just heard. You can see the spareness at the very beginning of the page. After finishing his eighth symphony, Mahler set a series of Chinese poems to music that spoke of repressed suffering and melancholic resignation in a collection of songs that came to be known as Das Lied von der Erde, the songs of the earth. Mahler was fairly superstitious and he did not want to write his Ninth Symphony for fear that he would not survive. But between Bruckner and Beethoven and other composers who did not live long after their Ninth Symphony. So this, although it is a symphony, it is not numbered. <laughs> um, we're gonna come into this piece here now. Uh, it's a series of, uh, of songs, of six songs. Uh, the first five songs are at the beginning of the piece and then there's an instrumental interlude in which there is a great deal of um, conflagration and um, struggle. We're going to come in after that has resolved itself and the singer, in this case uh, Krista Ludwig, um, is going to sing a song about the parting of two friends.
The final music, as you hear, is really not completely resolved. It doesn't really finish. And Mahler, who never conducted it, told Bruno Walter, his acolyte, his, uh, his young student, he said, you'll have to do it because I could never do it. The miasma, the space that we're floating in at the end of this, uh, is a space where the ego is lost. The, the self is annihilated. One's left floating in a kind of eternal space. You heard the end, towards the end, the plucking of what sound like Chinese instruments. There's a lot of association with Eastern mysticism here and the idea of nothingness and the equivalence of the all of life and the nothingness of death. At the end of Mahler's next work, the Ninth Symphony, which he wrote a year later, one's also left in this Empyrean, in this floating haze of sound, both the end of that piece and the end of this piece, you, you feel yourself merging with the cosmos. The difference is that at the end of this piece, death is understood as a synonym for eternity, a sense of immortality that one drifts into, one moves on into another sphere. In the Ninth Symphony, one experiences resignation and letting go. There's a final bowing of one's head to the inevitability of death after a valiant struggle. The um, Ninth Symphony was performed first in 1912. And what we're going to do now is um, go to the guru of Mahler, Leonard Bernstein. I'm going to show you a clip of him conducting the, the end of the Ninth Symphony uh, with his uh, voiceover. It's a rehearsal, and it's a, it's a wonderful clip. And I thought, who better than he to talk about the ineffability of Mahler? So once again, we have a little great. Oh. The German subtitles, but he's speaking in English. This was for German television. Which is now Eastern, a kind of very spare, Zen-like meditation. It's as though he's trying on for size, disembodiment. He's trying to see what it would be like to be disembodied, to be away from reality, to be part of the universe, to be molecular instead of to have an ego, to have an identity, a name. The orchestration becomes extremely bare and almost cold. In fact, utterly cold. It seems to be suspended in a kind of ether. Uh, the movement is barely discernible. The space between the lines is enormous, and it is the closest thing in music, in Western music, to the Eastern notion of 
intense transcendental meditation. But he's not yet ready to accept this cold solution, this drama, this nothingness. And so he breaks out again with this bitter, resentful, passionate clinging to life. So throughout the movement, Mahler alternates between these two attempts at spiritual attainment, the Western and the Eastern. When he runs out of steam in one, he tries the other, and vice versa. After a series of climaxes, the last of which, by the way, most remarkably doesn't succeed. It's a very short climax, 
which tries to be the super climax of all and doesn't work, you suddenly have the feeling that he has let it slip. And that is the turning point of the last movement, because it's at that moment that the world does slip out of his fingers. He somehow manages to arrive at a kind of blissful, serene acceptance of the end of life. And he does let go. And the letting go is one of the most remarkable things in all music, which is the last page of the symphony, which arrives with an amazing slowness, an amazing series of silences. After each one, he tries again to grab back at life, to hold on to it, and it slips again. series of attempts, each one of which is less and less successful. And finally, he lets go completely in the most easy and wonderful way. And finally, at the end of the movement, there is nothing but a series of spiderweb strands, one little strand that is barely holding him on to life. And then that lets go. And then one other little strand, just one high A-flat in the violins and a silence. And finally, the acceptance. And it dies away. Bernstein said that 
Mahler was a musical prophet. He wrote this in 1909. Uh, Mahler wrote this symphony in 1909, and it's as if he saw the entrance into the 20th century, which has become known as the century of death. Um, that somehow he understood in, inherently that we were moving from the death of the individual to the death of a planet. Um, here also, he, uh, Bernstein, liked to quote Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. He said that is exactly the quality of the end of the Ninth Symphony. Easeful death. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. And now we'll move on to Rothko. Um, Rothko, Mark Rothko, was born uh, Marcus Rothkovich in Davinsk, it's now Latvia, um, and came to Portland, Oregon at about the age of 11. Uh, his father had emigrated a few years before to set the family up, and then the family came to follow. Uh, two months later, his father died. Um, but he grew up essentially as, as an American uh, young man. He went to, uh, went to Yale for one year and then dropped out to go to New York to become a painter. Um, Rothko had hugely ambitious expectations for visual art, and he saw it as his role to elevate art to the level of the poignancy of music. He felt that visual art had not uh, met those needs, and he strove to, to achieve that. He was somebody who lived his life full of awe and also very aware of the great irony of life that we know we're going to die, but we live as if we won't. Um, it's hard. Rothko is an extremely complex character, not unlike Emily Dickinson and Gustav Mahler. But, uh, he struggled a great deal, and he was a difficult person to, uh, to be with. He had very elevated ideas and very poor skills for day-to-day -day life. Um, but somehow, he managed to create a body of work that is unique. Um, he rejected the stance of modernism, wanted to go back to the idea where art accepted the, the great themes, the great ideas. And um, he wanted his work to combine uh, melancholy and exhilaration so that together they could produce a kind of metaphysical solace for being alive. Um, these are very highfalutin <coughs> things. Uh, he was put, called to task quite often for his uh, esoteric positioning. He was very much apart from a lot of other painters, although he was also very much 
perceived as being part of the group of New York abstract expressionists in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, he identified very strongly with Nietzsche, who he read throughout his life. And Nietzsche said that um, the sublime subjugates terror by means of art. And that was his kind of war, war call, rallying call. This is uh, Davinsk, where he was from. I'm going to go through this a little bit. I don't want to keep it too long. Um, when he came to New York, he started painting. Uh, he went to the Art Students League. He painted New York scenes. Um, he, as all painters do, strove to find his vision. Um, he had a very intense surrealistic phase. Um, but, I'm sorry? Yeah, can we turn? Thank you. Actually, if you look at this long enough and squint, you can see a kind of prototypical Rothko, floating forms, geometric. Um, in 1949, he had what is considered a, a kind of a breakthrough year, and he left behind the street scenes and the surrealistic work and entered into this phase of what are now known as multiforms where he was beginning to lose connection with the visible world and move into this other plane. Uh, he was a remarkably prodigious painter. He painted enormous numbers of paintings. When he died, he had uh, over 800 paintings of his own that he had kept. Uh, he had a very contentious relationship with the art world. Uh, which uh, is an entirely different lecture. Um, <laughs> uh, but here you can see the beginnings of what we come to know as, uh, as, as Rothko, the intense saturated colors, the lyrical aspect, the verticality. And this by the middle of the 1950s, this is an example of kind of what's considered his classic period where he worked, these paintings are by and large uh, about eight feet by eight or nine feet. Uh, he, he loved the scale. He loved being able to embrace a painting like this and felt that viewers could embrace it similarly. Rich, lyrical, colorful. This was uh, a period in which he really, you felt, believed in the tradition of painting and that he was carrying it on. This is a painting of his called Homage to Matisse, which indicates, you know, his, his uh, aligning himself with the great masters of the past. This is a painting that Matisse did 1914 uh, during the, the First World War, the Great War when he was in the south of France. And you feel from a great colorist this withdrawal into non-color. Uh, and his paintings built up to this point, And this was as far as he went. You still have the window frame. You still feel the sense of space. And then Matisse retreated and went back to the figure. but. Uh, 50 years later, uh, there was no retreat in Rothko. There was kind of an inexorable drive towards that dark space. Uh, 
This is one of the paintings, one of the, one of a series of paintings that Mar Rothko was commissioned to paint for uh, the Seagram Building in New York. It was to be in the uh, the newly built and opened Four Seasons Restaurant. Very elegant, very uh, kind of uh, New York environment. He knew this when he accepted the commission. And a year and a half into the commission, when he had begun doing the paintings, he, with, he returned the, uh, the advance that he had been given. He didn't want these paintings to be in what he felt was uh, a social and uh, um, a kind of um, casual space. He felt they, did, they should be in a space where they were entitled to more serious uh, approbation. This is the series of paintings. He completed the series. And he, uh, at the end of his life, he donated them to the Tate Museum in London because they agreed to house them all in, in one room. This is one of the, uh, on the bottom is, a, is an example of one of the massive scaled paintings. So what happened is that in the transition from the, the large eight foot paintings, these paintings, some of them are 25 and 30 feet long by 10 feet tall. He went into a monumental scale and for some people, uh, there is that loss in this jump to bigger of that tactile quality and that individual personal relationship between the viewer and, and the painting. Uh, he was striving for something more, something deeper. And uh, in some ways, what happened was that the relationship between the surface and the lighting, um, which was in, um, in the classic paintings, it creates, there's an equivocation between the spatial passages. And in the bigger paintings, you lose that. And it's in that equivocation between the colors and the forms that I think the real rewards of Rothko's paintings pay off. And uh, the bigger ones, he didn't quite, wasn't quite able to sustain that. Here's a picture of him in his studio on Long Island uh, in meditation. This is what he did all the time. He would sit with his paintings and look at them. Um, somebody who joined him once said that watching Rothko look at his paintings, it was as if he was listening to the painting. He had a very strong passion for music. Um, and so that idea of raising, elevating painting to the level of music was something he strove for all the time. But there's this intense, intense uh, relationship between the viewer and the painting. Uh, and what happens sometimes, um, given the appropriately solemn context, virtually any dark surface, any blankness, any blackness, which we metaphorically can interpret, um, invoke self-generated illusions that could be mistaken for profundity. And this is something that he grappled with a great deal. Was this intensely profound or was this just dark? <laughs> that, that we project upon ourselves this, this uh, illusion that something is there. And he, he, he valued his work so much and yet he always was aware of the possibility of undercutting it. Uh, after the Seagram murals, he was commissioned by John and Dominique de Menil to paint 
a series of paintings for a chapel that was to be built in Houston, Texas. Uh, it was originally conceived of as a, a Catholic uh, church, and then it was changed to a multi-faith place of worship. Uh, this was uh, originally designed by Philip Johnson, and Johnson and Rothko had a falling out, so another architect finished the, comp the, the, um, the construction. But it's based on the uh, 9th century uh, octagonally shaped I'm losing the word, uh, in, Tor in Torcello, uh, the Basilica at Torcello, the island off of Venice, uh, the medieval. And the medieval art is very uh, resonant with Rothko's interior. These, again, are quite massive paintings. They appear to be almost minimal in this image, and they appear to be almost minimal when you first see them. Again, it's a question of allowing yourself the time for the richness of the color to, um, to, to seep, seep in, like the paint seeps into the canvas. Um, Rothko, again, with his relationship to Nietzsche, was constantly uh, aware of the dialectic between uh, Apollo and Dionysus, the Apollonian and the Dionysiac, uh, the Apollo representing the sun, cerebral clarity, Dionysus representing the more sensual, formless, wild part of the human personality. These paintings, in their extreme formality and concision, represent an Apollonian ideal. But the color, the rich, rich cranberry and violet and wine, these are the colors that evoke uh, Dionysus, even to the extent that the wine color, Dionysus, was the god of wine. The individual panels are very hard to read. Of course, all of this goes without saying that these approximations can't possibly account for the richness and the, uh, the depth of surface. But you can see in one of these panels an almost Chinese landscape-like feeling which is certainly not intentional on Rothko's part, but is certainly not something he denied, uh, one could see. When he did his easel paintings, which were eight feet, he could cover the whole canvas by himself. When he did these paintings, which were often 12 by 30 feet, he needed an assistant. They would start at the same time on opposite ends of the canvas and just cover the underpainting as they went along until they met in the middle. It had to be done in one, one gouache as an underpainting so that what was built upon it would not be uh, disturbed by, by pentimento coming from underneath. But you can see the hands of the artists in these. Another one. The shades, they are not the same color, all the panels. They vary quite subtly, but quite considerably. One of the things about the darkness of the paintings is that they bring you in very slowly. And as you look at them, more and more color is revealed. So at the one hand, um, we find that they appear to be dark and monochromatic. But over time, they, they uh, become very powerful and in their relationship to one another. Rothko never saw the Rothko Chapel. 
he finished the paintings and shipped them to Texas, and um, he died before the, uh, the chapel was open. He painted them in New York in a mock-up of the chapel in his studio. Uh, the light in his New York studio was exquisite. He had a parachute draped over a skylight, and it was very subdued and very highly nuanced. In Texas, the massively bright light uh, was very hard to manage, and it took the chapel several years and several um, technical advisors to find a way to mute the light. So it was an ongoing uh, installation. Another thing that happened with the, the chapel paintings is that uh, it became clear that Rothko, in his attempt to achieve a maximum surface and minimal color, had used all sorts of experimental approaches to laying paint on. One of them was to use egg yolk mixed in with the paint, which is a tradition that goes way back to, uh, to medieval times. What Rothko did not do was remove the membrane of the egg yolk. He mixed it, he went to the, he'd have his assistants go down to the store and get a dozen eggs and he'd just break them, separate them and drop the yolks into the paint. Well, three years after the humidity of Texas, um, little white dots began to appear all over the paintings. And this was the, uh, the membrane of the album that uh, had encrusted in the paint and came to the surface. So they also had to close the chapel for many years to restore the paintings. When he finished the, um, the chapel paintings, he went back to New York. It was an enormous project um, for him. And he began to think of what was next. And he embarked upon a series of these, what are now known as the black and gray paintings. Um, it was a voyage inward. The chapel paintings and the Seagram paintings had been massive and, and kind of a universal statement of his. These returned very much to personal and individual scale and individual concerns. The black paintings are texts whose readings are elusive and provisional. And this is from the series that he painted. <clears throat> there are great paradoxes in these paintings. One is that black is both a color and it marks the absence of color. And also that these dark paintings somehow seem to move towards light. No, these paintings all had, um, unusually, uncharacteristically for him, he taped the edges of the canvas. I think his concern was that if the painting went to the edge, it would dissolve, and he found this was the best way to contain without having a frame around the painting, to on the surface of itself, is to mark off an edge. Of course, the white is a, is a remarkable contrast. It's, it's very powerful, and when you see the paintings, usually hung on white walls, it doesn't read, it doesn't, in this situation here, it becomes much more pronounced. Um, these black and gray paintings are Rothko's deepest manifestation of his obsession with the irony of existence. They are perilously close to nothing. 
poised near the void, they are assertive through negative cancellations. Meaning is gone. These paintings are the visual equivalent of both Dickinson's Plank of Reason and Mahler's spider-like final notes. Rothko committed suicide um, in 1970. Uh, he was working on a new phase of paintings. People often associate the dark black and gray paintings with depression. I don't think that's really the case at all. I think it was really taking up very much the idea of mortality and the end of life. And where he moved after he finished them into these, again, brightly lighted, brightly colored paintings, indicates a kind of a renewal, which he was not able to sustain. Thank you very much. <laughs>